Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Today's Wednesday, October 7th. The Dow is up, more NFL players are down with coronavirus, and we're focused on the business of candy. Halloween is just 24 days away, but for most of us, it's going to be unrecognizable. Trick-or-treating has already been canceled in many places because it involves interacting with strangers and kids putting their hands in the same candy bowl as kids just put it in before. Basically a COVID cocktail. Halloween parties? Well, at best, they're going to be a lot smaller. In fact, the only thing really going for Halloween in the pandemic age is that masks are entirely appropriate. For kids, this is just the latest in a long line of 2020 suck. For the candy industry, though, it could have longer-lasting ramifications. Halloween, for them, is as big, if not bigger, than Easter and Christmas, and candy makers won't get another bite of that caramel apple until next October. Early sales numbers have been promising, but the reality is that the vast majority of Halloween candy doesn't come off the shelves until just days before the holiday itself. So we wanted to discuss Halloween and the broader state of confection with the CEO of Illinois-based Ferrara Candy, which makes everything from Brax candy corns to Juji fruits to nerds. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Ferrara Candy CEO Todd Siwak. So Todd, let's start just with Halloween. How important is that holiday to the candy industry overall and to your company in particular? Halloween, as you can appreciate, is a significant holiday and celebration for our industry. It represents about $4.5 billion of retail sales. If you think about it, at the very end of August, as back-to-school fades and the fall season begins to emerge, it's about a 13-week holiday. And so it's important to us. For our business specifically, it's a 10% component of our revenue. And uh, it helps us continue to reinforce the importance of our brands and kind of our presence in celebrating the holidays. How are you anticipating the impact of call it less Halloween celebration in 2020 on your business? First, we learned a challenging lesson during Easter, which is also a holiday that's celebrated pretty similarly as you think about the interface with confection and gathering of friends and family. And I think there were three things that we really worked on with our retail partners starting really in April and May after we assessed the findings of Easter. And the first was, how do we really extend the holiday, meaning the presence in store? As the frequency in store is reduced by the shopper, so fewer trips but bigger baskets, we wanted to make sure we were there presenting the opportunity to consumers. So we stretched the holiday, we executed early, we moved to a lot of individually wrapped confection items, just continued to bolster our omni-channel and e-commerce presence which for us, Dan, has worked very well. Our business is up about 500% in the midst of COVID. And then lastly, we're coupling that with a lot of social digital marketing programs, augmented reality, a partnership with Ghostbusters to create a fully immersive and an interactive celebration that begins to replicate some of those larger parties that might otherwise transpire. Is it your expectation that the decrease this Halloween compared to past years will be less than the Easter decrease? Just because among other things, during Easter, Lots of your retail partners were either physically closed or maybe like some of the pharmacies just doing drive-through for essential items, not necessarily candy. That's right. This is what we know so far. And it's still early, believe it or not, even though we're 10 weeks into what is a 13-week selling cycle. So we're about 40% of the way into selling. And in the 40% of selling progress, our business is up about 12%. 
year over year. That's including the online, correct? That's including the online, but that's total volume. Now we know the majority of the holiday sales transpire in the next three weeks, another 60%. But our perspective on this is we're partnering, I think, in a thoughtful way with the entire community to ensure that when nothing seems normal to parents, as you think about it, this is an opportunity that I think we all desperately want something to celebrate, celebrate in a thoughtful, rational way. So we're seeing the season evolve thus far relatively favorably. There was some data that came out that surprised a lot of people maybe a week or two ago talking about how Halloween candy sales were actually up. And one thesis on that was, well, lots of companies decided to get things on the shelves earlier and discount much earlier than they normally would. Is that an accurate understanding why in part the numbers seem to be stronger than the layperson would have expected? Unlike perhaps Easter, Halloween has been a consistently growing category for the entire industry, growing at 2 or 3% year over year. It's supported by really strong demographics. Millennial Gen Z participation in the holiday is greater than it was with other generations. So we had the secular tailwind that was helping the business, the celebration of the holiday as well. Can you give me a sense of what the shelf life is for your products? In other words, if you make some candy corns today and they don't get sold this Halloween, can they be sold next Halloween? No, that's not typically everything we make is for this season. We have 85% of the market share of candy corn. And so if you think about that, that's a dish candy that people put in their homes early in the season. We start making that immediately following the end of Easter. So we're the largest also manufacturer of jelly beans, another little known fact. So as soon as we finish making jelly beans, we will start in April and May making the candy corn that finds its way on shelves in August. Obviously, it's not the same process to make a jelly bean or candy corn, but is it basically the same manufacturing lines, the same people who are making those things? It is. It's the same team, same lines. I have a colleague who is obsessed with candy corn and wanted me to ask you, what is the appropriate number of candy corns to eat in a single sitting? Well, I think there are a lot of ways to answer that. The responsible (laughs) approach would be, you know, to the extent that there is a responsible approach would be a couple times a week and a small handful plus or minus would be the appropriate number. I mean, arguably, of course, we're biased, Dan. In the kind of the broader food and beverage space, there's been this kind of, quote, better for you movement, right? Including, you know, big companies like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo. You know, can we provide healthier products? You guys are obviously unapologetically candy, and candy is unapologetically not a better for you product. How do you kind of swim against that grain? I think what you're seeing is if you step back and look at the entire snacking category, both sweet package and better for you, we're seeing growth. So snacking in general is growing at about 4%. The confection component of that is about $35 billion. So it's the third or fourth largest category in a grocery store. And so as we think about the habits, and we referred earlier to millennial Gen Z consumption, increased reliance on snacking, increased habit of hand-to-mouth snacking. So as you put those together, those trends generally work well for better for you, but they also work well for small indulgence. So the confection category, in a, maybe in a counterintuitive way, is growing at 2 or 3% pretty consistently. Talk small indulgence. So three final rapid fire questions for you. First, true or false, nerds are all the same flavor. They just smell and look different. False. Fun dip, which is tastier, the powder or the stick? I think it's a powder by far. Final for you, of all your brands, of all your products, if you could only eat one, what's your favorite? Black Forest Gummy Bear. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Dan, thank you for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the Supreme Court, 
which heard oral arguments in Google v. Oracle. Why it matters is that this case, which started about a decade ago, could determine the future of software development because it'll decide if copyright protections apply to APIs, those common interfaces that let different software programs speak to one another. In short, Google says there are no such copyright protections. Oracle says there are. Both companies have swapped lower court victories and also both say that if their side loses, it would chill innovation. Axios Tech Policy reporter Ashley Gold listened in on today's hearing, so we asked for her top takeaways. Most important things I heard today is that the justices very much were struggling to grapple with these thorny questions of software and who should own what. It's a complicated, dense topic. On Oracle's side, the Chief Justice Don Roberts came out pretty strong, seeming to sympathize with the intellectual property rights argument, the pro-copyright argument. But uh, Justices Breyer and Sotomayor kept drawing this comparison to a QWERTY keyboard and saying that the inventor of QWERTY keyboards should not be in charge of all keyboards ever. They simply came up with the best system of how the key should be laid out. That doesn't mean they own the copyright to every keyboard ever. And they seemed pretty convinced by that argument, but not all justices agreed. Today, we're also continuing to digest the House Judiciary Report on Big Tech, which concludes that Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google are each monopolies. The bottom line? The House Judiciary Committee can't force any of those companies to do much of anything when it comes to antitrust. That sort of action would have to come from the Justice Department or the FTC, which means it really would wind up in the courts. And finally, we are continuing to follow the stimulus situation, which could best be described as chaotic. Yesterday, just before the markets closed, President Trump tweeted that he was calling off stimulus negotiations until after the election. Then, just a little while later, he retweeted Fed Chair Jay Powell's statement that stimulus is desperately needed and that there's no risk of, quote, overdoing it, basically contradicting what Trump had just tweeted. Then this morning, Trump said he would support standalone bills to reauthorize the Paycheck Protection Program for small business loans and the airline bailout bill, which the House GOP blocked just a couple days ago. Again, chaotic. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national pumpkin seed day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.